You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. ...you've had, but just in case you don't already know, um, the reading today is um, by Paula Gooder, who's written a series of um, stories, really, um, around women who um, were part of um, Holy Week. And this one is the story of Anna. My name is Anna. I've lived in Jerusalem all my life. The temple, God's temple, has been the center of my life for as long as I can remember. Wherever I go, the temple is in the corner of my eye, helping me to navigate through Jerusalem's winding streets, reminding me that no no matter what happens, God, my God, is right there with me. I was named after my great aunt, Anna. She was a prophet, and after her husband died, she lived in the temple day and night, fasting and praying and reading scripture. She lived in a corner of the core of the women, as close as she was allowed to be to her God. She couldn't go further, and even in her old age, she showed her indignation at it the thought that she, a small, old, bent old woman, could in any way threaten her God, creator and judge of the whole world, whose steadfast love endures forever, but who might flee in fright if a woman got too close. I used to go and visit her, and she would tell me the old, old stories of our faith, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, of Sarah and Hagar, Rebecca and Rachel, of Moses and Joshua, of Zipporah and Rahab. And at the end, she would grasp my hands tightly and whisper, it's your story too. Never let them paint you out. And I'd smile and nod, wondering what she meant. One day, just after I was married, I arrived in the temple to visit her as usual. As I entered the court of the women, one of the Levites drew me to one side. She's lost it. He said, I think it's time you took her home. I looked over to the corner where she studied and prayed and slept to see her full of life, talking to a crowd of people. And I looked at the Levite questioningly. She thinks she's met the Messiah, bless her. She talks about him to anyone who'll listen. And she says he was a baby. He laughed and returned to his post at the gate, shooing away some unsuspecting visiting Gentiles who'd paused for long enough at the entrance to to suggest that they might be coming in. I walked over to my great-aunt, slightly bemused. The previous week when I visited her, she'd shown no signs of the fading of her spirit that you sometimes see in elders. Quite the opposite. She was as sprightly and insightful as ever. She saw me walking towards her and hurried over as quickly as her bent frame would allow. Those endless nights sleeping in the temple had done her body no good at all. Little Anna. To her, I'd always be little Anna, even though I towered above her now. Little Anna, she said. I saw him. Who? I asked, concerned, remembering the Levite's words. The saviour. I held him in my arms. I sang him a lullaby, a love song for my Lord. A few days later, she died, and now every time I go to the temple, I look over into her corner and wonder who or what she thought she had seen. They told me later that she died with a smile on her lips and that she was whispering the words, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever.
today as I got ready to go to the temple, slowly and wearily. I wondered what Anna would say to me now. When she was alive, I, I faced life with joy and confidence, thinking that nothing could bring me down, but I was wrong. Life itself defeated me. God's very self brought me to the depths of the pit. I'm left with nothing. Only the echoes of my cries to a God who never answers. A few years ago, I had everything, and now I gather everything I have left to go to the temple to make my gift. I know I don't have to. I'm only a woman. No one expects me to. No one cares. No one notices whether I do. Until this year, I would have said that God notices. The God who's loved me from the moment I was woven together in my mother's womb. The God who sees me sitting down and my rising. The God whom great aunt Anna loved with every fibre of her being. Until this year, I'd have said that God sees. But last year, almost exactly to the day, a mysterious illness crept through the city, taking first my parents and then my sons. And last of all, my husband. And now I'm alone, quite alone in the world. I have no money. Well, I have two coins, tiny they are, the size of my thumbnail. One to buy bread for tomorrow, and the last one I'll give in thanks to my God. The journey to the temple seemed longer than usual. I was jostled at every step. I almost gave up. The joy of the pilgrim seemed to mock my numb misery. At last I stood before the funnels of the treasury. At the next funnel was a man who'd come with his whole family, seven sons he said he had, and I know that because he announced it so loudly. I've come to the temple. I've come to pay the temple tax for myself and my seven sons, he proclaimed as he dropped eight gleaming silver half-shekels one by one from a great height into the bronze funnel in front of him. God is good, he declared at full volume, and then under his breath, and so am I. He turned to walk away, barging into me as he did. When he saw me, he dusted himself down, disgust written all over his face, and I wanted to tell him I wasn't always like this. I wanted to tell him that I used to come with my husband and sons and pay the temple tax in full, just like him. I wanted him to see me not as I am now, but as I used to be. But even as I opened my mouth to speak, I realised that words simply couldn't say all that needed to be said. I turned to the treasury box, its bronze mouth seemingly mocking the smallness and the inadequacy of my gift. I stood there for a moment looking at those two tiny coins, all I had left in the world in the palm of my hand. As I stood there, I could have sworn I heard Anna's voice echoing in my ear. His steadfast love endures forever. Before I knew what I'd done, I'd dropped both coins into the funnel. My love gift for the God who, despite it all, I had to believe saw me and loved me. The sound of their double clink echoed around the courtyard. I looked instinctively in the direction of Anna's corner, and there was a man standing there, surrounded by a group of people. He looked right at me, right, or so it felt, into my numb, grieving heart. He simply nodded at me, 
and turned to say something to those around him. I could see from his eyes that he saw me. He saw all of it. He turned to those around him and pointed at me, his eyes full of admiration. When I got home, standing outside my tiny room was my neighbour of a few days. She told me she was called Sarah and that along with her husband Jacob, a priest, she was here for the feast. She wondered, she said, if I'd like to eat with them while they were here. They had plenty to share. But, but why? I stammered, why would you do that for me? She smiled at me and said, love God and love your neighbour. That is the whole law. Someone said that to my husband recently, someone who meant it with the whole of themselves. And it makes more sense to me than anything else I've ever heard. I listened, and then I felt an overwhelming need to lean against the wall for strength. Could it be? Could it be that the God who sees had heard my cry after all? Um, yes, yeah, so as Leanne said, I am uh, the slightly less good stand-in for Rebecca this morning, who unfortunately tested positive last week. Um, she is uh, doing okay, um, but is living in a house with a husband and a brother-in-law who also are testing positive for COVID, and so there was basically no chance she was going to avoid it. Um, many years ago, before I started working for Oasis, I used to work in marketing, and I worked for uh, a Christian charity. We were doing a series on preaching. We were interviewing some preachers and saying, how do you how do you prepare? Where do you start? Where do you get your inspiration from? What's the what's the kind of background, you know, that reading that you do, all these kind of things in a in an attempt to help people to become better preachers. And as part of this, I went down to a big church uh, somewhere in London and I filmed a, a church leader and he was kind of like quite young but like up and coming in the kind of Christian celebrity world you know he was the kind of person he'd written a couple of books you know and now he was getting to do Soul Survivor and Spring Harvest and all this kind of stuff and one of the questions that I asked him was um, I'm filming him and I said um, right then so uh, What's the first thing? Right, so here's a scenario for you, I said. Um, imagine you've been dropped in it last minute. Um, you've got to preach and you've been dropped in it. And what's the first thing that you do if you had a really short period of time in which to uh, to write this talk? What's the first thing that you do? And he said, oh, hang on. And can you stop the camera? And I said, uh, yeah, OK. So I stopped the camera. And he said, how long have I got? And I said, oh, it's just um, just, uh, just a hypothetical question, you know. But, but how long would I have to prepare? And I said, um, mate, let's say it's three days. Let's say it's three days before it's the, it's the Thursday morning and you just got a phone call saying, I can't do the, the talk on Sunday. You've got to step in. What would you do? Three days, he said. He said, oh, I could absolutely not do anything if it was less than a week's notice. So earlier this week, Rebecca sends me a text message saying that she's tested positive for COVID and I've got to step in for her on a Sunday morning. So it is slightly less than the time scale that your wonderful up-and-coming preacher would have, uh, would have had to deal with, but hopefully all will be okay. We are looking at this story of Anna, um, this book, Women of Holy Week. And as Leanne and Emily have said, these are semi-fictional stories. They sometimes call it creative non-fiction, taking an idea that is 
fact and making some stories out of it. And some of the stories that we have are based more on fiction and some are based more on fact. And this story, I'm sure lots of you would have recognized it this morning. Um, the, it comes from Mark's uh, version of Jesus's life and it's also in Luke's story of Jesus's life as well. And we'll look at the version in Mark this morning from Mark chapter 12. And let's read those verses together. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. On face value, this is a story about radical generosity, isn't it? The rich people in this story are the religious leaders. In some other translations, they're called the scribes. And they make a big show of coming into the temple and throwing in their large amounts of coins into the temple treasury. A bit of context for us here. Um, Herod's temple had three sections. I hope you can see the numbers on the screen. But number one is the Gentiles courtyard where everybody could come. That was where if you needed to sacrifice an animal, that's where you would buy your animals. And it's also where the money exchange was done. Day to day, you would live by spending denarii, Roman currency. But if you were going to pay the temple tax, give money to the temple and the upkeep of the temple, you would need to pay in Tyrian silver. So you would bring your Roman denarii to the money changers who would be in that court of Gentiles, and then you would change it into your Tyrian silver. Actually, the, as, a, as, a, as a quick aside, a, the description of the money that was paid to Judas to betray Jesus suggests that that money was given to Judas in Tyrian silver. Money that should have been used for the upkeep of the temple is what was used to betray Jesus. So the next level in, number two, that you can see there was the court of the women because this was as far as women could go. And it was also called the treasury. After that, number three, you had the court of the priests where sacrifices took place. And beyond that, you had the sanctuary and the holy of holies, which was the really exclusive bit. This story, Anna's story, takes place in the treasury, in the court of the women. And the religious leaders are making a bit of a show of giving their money. The collection box, which was used for the temple tax, was deliberately made of bronze so that you could hear the coins clink as you put your money in. So if you really wanted to make a show of it, if you really wanted people to know how much you were giving, you could pretty easily do so. There's a little detail in one of those verses that says, many rich people threw in large amounts, but the poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Imagine the difference in the noise levels of putting in your small copper coins or throwing in lots of silver. Now, the temple tax was a half shekel for every male over the age of 20. But one of the interesting things in this story is that women were exempt from the temple tax. So this widow, Anna, she isn't actually paying a tax at all. She's making a genuine donation here. In verse 
42, it says she put in two very small copper coins. The coins she gave were called lepta. They were Roman coins. They were the smallest denomination possible. So small, they weren't worth any Tyrian silver. So she couldn't have got her money changed in the outside courts if she'd wanted to. It would be like coming to the front at the end of the service and putting two 1P coins into the collection bucket. In Paula Gooder's story, she imagines Anna hearing the words of her great aunt saying the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And she responds to God's love for her, God's steadfast love which endures forever by giving all that she has, both of the coins that she's holding. In Mark's account, Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, on one hand, this is a story about radical generosity. Can we learn from Anna to be more radical in our giving? There's a story told by the American theologian, Tony Campolo. He was invited to speak at a women's meeting and there were 300 people there. And before he got up to speak, they read a letter that had been sent to them by a missionary that they had been in contact with. This missionary, some emergency situation had happened and the missionary needed $4,000. And the person who was leading this meeting said to Tony Campolo, will you come up please and pray that this $4,000 will be found? And he said, no, I won't. And the person looked and said, kind of assuming he's joking. No, I won't do that. And he said, I'll tell you why. He said, because I think God's already provided that $4,000 and it's in this room. And the person leading the meeting said, oh, yes, I, I, sorry, we, we see what Brother Campolo is trying to say, trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that we should be more generous. And he said, hang on, no, 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 I'm not. He said, I actually think the $4,000 is in this room if we're up for giving it. He said, I bet. If everybody gets their purses out, gets their wallets out, turns out what they've got in there, puts it on the table at the front, I bet we'll find $4,000. And so he got up and he walked to the front and he got his wallet out and he said, I've got $15 in here. He put it on the table and then he stared at the person leading the meeting. And after a few seconds, she gave in and she got her purse out and she had $40 in there. And one by one, people came up to the front. And they opened their wallets and they opened their purses and they put the money on the table and they counted it all out and it was more than $4,000. Then Tony Campolo came to the front and he said, now here's the lesson. God supplies for our needs and he supplied for this missionary too. The only problem was we were keeping it for ourselves. So now I'll pray and I'll thank God for his provision. Sometimes generosity means stretching ourselves, not expecting someone else to fix the problem, not praying and hoping that this money will magically be found from somewhere. But sometimes if there are things that we would like to do as a church, 
sometimes this requires us to be more radical with how we spend our money. So this is a story about radical generosity. It's also a story about religious hypocrisy. We can't read those verses in isolation. Anna's story starts a bit earlier than that. Verse 38 in this chapter. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. The NRSV translation, that's the New International Version. The NRSV version says, Beware of these people. Beware of these religious authorities who like the power, who like everyone to think that they're important, who want the best seats. Beware of those who are happy to stand up and preach about what you should be doing. Happy to make a big show of the money that they are giving. But behind closed doors, they live a different way. Beware of hypocritical religious leaders. And I bet we've all been around long enough. We can all think of an example of a hypocritical religious leader, can't we? Maybe some of you were thinking about me. But I read a story earlier this week about Brian Houston, who's the leader of Hillsong Church, who stepped down this week because of some allegations of inappropriate behavior with two women. I've read a bit about the fallout too. People who were big supporters of him, big supporters of Hillsong, saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe he's done this. He's let me down, all this kind of thing. How could he be standing on stages preaching when this was going on behind closed doors? He is such a hypocrite. And I've also seen some responses to this story, which, to be honest, have saddened me a little bit. Because obviously what Brian Houston has done is not good enough, is it? It really isn't. There is no excusing that at all. And we do need to hold our leaders to account, of course we do, in this church as much as any other church. But for me, my personal reflection on some of what I've read is I think that I need to spend more time addressing some of the hypocrisy in my own life in trying to challenge the areas of my life where I am susceptible to saying something and then doing something else. Maybe taking the plank out of my own eye before I inspect the speck in somebody else's. Some of you will have joined our Zoom book club last year where we read this book together, Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. He talks about there being four stages of Christianity about those of us who have moved away from a traditional conservative evangelical Christianity towards something that looks a bit different, maybe more progressive. He says stage one are these early beliefs and stage four is this more progressive belief, this more progressive view. And he says that sometimes we can get stuck in stage three, which is where we've moved away from the old beliefs that we had, but we can't let some of that old life go. He says in stage three, we feel hurt because we don't fit in any longer with those old structures, with those old beliefs, with those old churches that used to give us security because we shared those beliefs. 
for a while, this is really understandable. It's understandable that people might get stuck there because people need time to heal, to grieve, to be angry, all of these things to process. But he says, eventually we have to move past that. We cannot get stuck in stage three. He says stage three is like a maze which people can't escape from, where hope gets whittled away. And all we can be capable of is moral outrage. I think stage three Christians can pride themselves on how inclusive they are. We're inclusive of Christians who identify as LGBT+. We're inclusive of people of other faiths. But we can sometimes be even less inclusive than those in that stage one conservative theology when it comes to people who hold views that we probably held 10 or 20 years ago. We need to move on from that. And Brian McLaren says, move into a stage four faith where we are not defined by what we are against but we are defined by what we are for. Where we don't respond to these stories by saying, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. But actually, instead of being defined by what we're against, we can move on to what we are for. And maybe one of the other lessons that we can learn is not to put our trust in a leader, in a person, in a fallible human being, whoever they are, instead of spending our time focusing on following the example of Jesus. But back to Anna's story. This story isn't just about religious leaders being hypocritical because they're falling and failing on an individual basis, being selfish, not showing any generosity. But also, and more importantly, Jesus is calling out the structures that they have set up. They aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless and the widow, that, your Lord, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Psalm 146 verse 9. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68 verse 5. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. There are over a hundred verses in the Bible about the importance of looking after widows. All the ones that I have just read to you are from what we know as the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Those religious leaders who are throwing in their coins and making a big show of it, they would have memorized all of those verses. They would have been able to quote to you 
each and every one of those verses. And despite this, they have set up a system where a widow only has two pennies and she is encouraged to go to the temple and give them both away. Because this story is about radical generosity. It is about religious hypocrisy. But there's also another way of looking at it. Let's go back to those verses again. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many people, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Maybe Jesus isn't admiring the widow. Maybe this isn't. Look at this woman. She's really showing you how to be generous, but maybe Jesus is saying, look, look at what's happening over there. God tells you to look out for the widow. And here you are creating a religious system that is taking the very last coins from a woman who is living in desperate poverty. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They've given out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything, everything she had to live on. That's not right. She hardly had anything to start with, and now she has nothing. The system is failing her. When a Jewish man died, his widow wasn't trusted to look after the affairs, the estate that the man had left. And so what happened in those situations was that the scribes, the religious leaders that are talked about in these very passages, they would come in and they would sort out all the paperwork. They'd sort out all the money. If there was land that they needed to sell, they'd sell the land. And of course, guess what? They took a cut of all of that. When this was done properly, it was too much money. But often the system was abused. The religious leaders were embezzling money from widows who had nothing. That's the system. The system is failing her. And on top of that, the religious leaders have then set up a system where the rich and poor both pay the same. Remember in Anna's story, it said a half shekel per male over the age of 20. So irrelevant how rich you are. Irrelevant how much money you've got. Everybody over the age of 20 is to come to the temple and put in a half shekel, regardless of how much they earn or how much they were worth. No one, no one said to the widow, hang on, you can't afford this. In Paula Gooder's book, Anna's story ends with this couple who have heard Jesus talk, whose lives have been transformed by this idea of loving your neighbor. They then invite Anna in for a meal. But in the real world, I wonder what happened to this widow. 
God in his holy dwelling is a defender of widows. No wonder Jesus would have been furious. In God's name, in the temple where you worship God, this is the system you've come up with. This. And let's be honest, sometimes the modern church isn't any better, is it? Most churches, lots of churches anyway, will teach tithing that everyone in their congregation should give 10% of their income to the church. But there's a really obvious problem with this. If you're a couple and you're living on universal credit, that's £100 a week for the two of you to live on. 10% of that is an unbelievable amount of money. Compare that with somebody who's been living on a six-figure salary for the last 30 years and have paid off their mortgage. A flat rate isn't just. This is the current rates of income tax in the UK. What do you notice about it? It's not a flat rate. Those who earn more pay more. If you earn up to £12,000, you don't pay anything. If you earn over 150000 anything on top of that is taxed at 45%. Even UK law recognises that those who earn more should contribute more. But churches, which are meant to be about justice, equality, shouting for equity, we say 10% across the board, regardless of whether you're that person who's paid off their house and earning a six-figure salary, or regardless of whether you are living on universal credit and there's two of you trying to struggle by in £100 a week. This story is about more than radical generosity. Of course, radical generosity is something we should work towards, but it's about more than that. I think this story is asking us a question. How can we change systems change structures so that we create a more just society. There's a really obvious parallel here today with our food bank. For those of you who don't know, we run the Waterloo Food Bank, which has just been getting worse and worse and busier and busier for all the years that I've been involved with it. People being radically generous and giving to our food bank is a great thing. And we are hugely grateful for that. And we really need the support. But at the same time, all of us who work here get really angry that we need a food bank at all. Because the system and the structure has to change. Earlier this week, I was in a meeting with Rebecca, who was meant to be speaking this morning. She's our food bank manager. And somebody said in this meeting, have you seen an increase because of all the cost of living, living stuff that's going on at the moment? And she said, yeah. She said, we've seen a bit of an increase. She said, but I am really worried about this winter. When people have to put their heating on more, with the prices increasing, people aren't going to be able to afford to do that and eat. Now, last winter, we were giving out hot water bottles and blankets as well as our food parcels. 
We're giving out food parcels to people. And we're giving out blankets and hot water bottles as well. And this winter, that problem is going to be so much worse. Radical generosity to our food bank. People donating food, money, blankets, hot water bottles. Of course, this is wonderful, but we have to change the system. We cannot keep getting to winter months and giving out blankets and hot water bottles. Something has to change. This week we had the spring statement. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced the government's plan to deal with this, to sort out this problem, to help out those most vulnerable in our community. The Resolution Foundation did some analysis of what the government is proposing, and they say that the number of people living in absolute poverty will rise by 1.3 million, including half a million children in 22-23. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation did some research and they said families in poverty will be £446 per year worse off in 22-23. Households in poverty and out of work are particularly harshly affected by these changes. Now, it's important to say that this is not party political. We can be political without being party political. We can criticise policies without criticizing parties. I think we have to criticize and call out policies, regardless of who is in power at any given time. If a policy hurts the most vulnerable in our society, then it is our duty to call that out, to try and do something about it, regardless of what party is proposing that system. Learn to do good seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jesus calls out the story of the widow and the religious leaders because he is pleading the widow's cause. He's correcting oppression. He's seeking justice. And we have to do the same. It angers me that this winter I will be standing here asking you to donate blankets and hot water bottles so that I can donate them to people who live in one of the richest cities in the world. It upsets me that I'll have to do that. Because I refuse to believe that we should live in a country where that happens. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on, Jesus says. Look at what's happening here. This isn't right. So as I end, we all have to find our own response to this. I'm really aware that as these costs of living increases take effect, they're also affecting far more people than just those who would usually use our food bank. It could be this morning that we are sitting here feeling like Anna, and we're just not able to be radically generous with our money because the increase in our gas and electricity bills mean that the day-to-day -day is a struggle at the moment. And if that is you, please, please do not feel like you have to put your last two pennies into the bucket. 
this church will never ask you to do that. Never. But we might be in a different situation where we can be part of the solution to some of these problems, where we are able to give to the work of this church so that fewer people struggle, where we can give radically. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This week, let's spend a bit of time reflecting on what this means for us. In what areas of our lives can we plead the widow's cause? What are the oppressive practices that we can work to correct? Where can we seek justice? I'm going to invite Nath and the band back up and we'll sing together as we end. We'll sing an old hymn called Be Thou My Vision. And there's a verse in it which says, Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise. You're my inheritance now and always. You and you only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure you are. Let's pray together and then we'll sing these words. God, we sing these words. Help us to live like this. Today we commit ourselves to responding how you would respond. Not to stand by as the vulnerable give the last of what they have. But help us to live lives of radical generosity. Help us to correct oppression. To work to change systems that don't look out for the widow. For the vulnerable in our societies. Amen. Oh,